D.A. Carson tells a story of a friend who served as a seminary professor in India. He was fluent in Hindi, and he just so happened to be a pretty energetic evangelist. And so he would go from village to village sharing the gospel of Christ. And knowing some of the Indian culture and religions, he, he took pains to express the exclusivity of Jesus. And yet, despite his efforts to share the gospel faithfully, and despite the fact that he had heard many professions of faith in Jesus, he didn't see any churches planted. And he asked himself why, as he returned home to regroup before returning again, he thought it was because he just wasn't speaking the gospel clearly enough. He wasn't teaching in a way that the Indian people could really get their minds around. That Christ existed as the only God. And that if they were to follow Jesus, they would have to put away all of their false gods. He recognized that his mistake was that even though he was fluent in Hindi and understood the culture a little bit, that he still wasn't speaking their language. That he needed to understand a more more completely the worldview of the people to whom he was speaking. And so what he did when he returned was instead of just starting with uh, Jesus and his birth and uh, his perfect life and his substitutionary death and telling them about the resurrection of Jesus, he started back in Genesis 1.1 and took lots of time explaining that God created everything, that he was triune in perfect community with himself and that man had sinned. And it was at this point he was able to express the gospel to them in a way where they went, oh, this is what he's saying. And as a result, there were far fewer professions of faith. But there were genuine conversions. And churches began to be planted. You see, we come to Acts chapter 17 this morning, and we find Paul doing a very similar thing in Athens He is engaging with the worldview of the Greeks and speaking to them in a language that they can understand. And so my exhortation is going to follow on the heels of that a little bit. And the application is this, that we want to learn well who we're sharing the gospel with. We want to learn about their worldview so that we can figure out how to best communicate Christ to them. So what you'll see here is Paul doesn't change the message of the gospel, but he changes the method in which he speaks it. And so we'll see that in our text this morning, and I think that the main idea of this passage actually isn't that application, but it's the main idea of Paul's sermon, which is that the living God, the God who is, is knowable, that we can know him because he's revealed himself to us, and that he commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in Christ. So so that's the main idea this morning, is that the God who exists, the real God, the living God, can be known. You can see your outline there before you. We're going to walk through the text in two parts. We're going to talk about the city and then Paul's sermon. But we'll pray and begin our time together this morning. Father, we come to you once again this week looking to hear from you. Boldly asking that you might give us more grace that you might conform us more to the image of Christ, that you might give us more of yourself, that you might make our hearts desire 
for you and you alone. Indeed, God, you are the fountain of life, and we, your people, come asking for a drink this morning. As the deer pants for the water, so our souls long after you. We come here expecting to hear from you, expecting to be changed, expecting to experience your presence through our songs and our fellowship with one another and hearing your word proclaimed and coming to you in prayer. God, we we have obeyed your command to gather this morning and now we ask that you might allow us to continue to experience all of the blessings that go with obedience to you. Meet us here. Lord, we pray that you would speak now that we might listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been walking through the book of Acts, and you guys are just really going to know this. You're going to have it down by the time we're done. We've summarized the whole book this way, that Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And we've seen this happen throughout the book. The Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus rose up and ascended to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns. He's the one who sent or poured out his Holy Spirit on his church. His church has filled up the world witnessing to Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's through the mouths of his disciples, through the mouths of the church, that Jesus is being proclaimed. They're witnessing to him. And many are coming to faith in Christ. God is bringing people in. And so we see this as Paul continues along his second missionary journey. He was chased out of Thessalonica and Berea, and now he finds himself in Athens by himself as he awaits Silas and Timothy and company to rejoin him. And this is what we read in verse 16 of chapter 17, in case I didn't say that. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed, provoked in his spirit when he saw the city was full of idols. Athens is a grand city. It was the center of Greek intellectual thought. It had majestic architecture. And in terms of its historical pedigree, it was second to none. It's a beautiful and magnificent city. It's the kind of place you would go to do some sightseeing. I mean, there were just wonder after wonder in some of these buildings. People still go there to see some of the buildings that existed. And yet Paul isn't struck by the grandeur of Athens. He's struck by the amount of idols. He's not impressed with the city. He's distressed by its godlessness. This word distressed or provoked in spirit It showed up before in Acts when Paul and Barnabas had their sharp disagreement. The same idea here. He's really, he's emotionally stirred up. He's he's moved. And his distress over all these idols is eventually going to lead him into a particular mission. It's going to lead him to start spiritual conversations and to preach a sermon. But at this point, I want, want to ask you, When was the last time you were distressed over godlessness around you? When was the last time the idols 
of our culture moved you to pray or to share with someone? Have we become numb to the spiritual darkness around us? Do we share the heart of Paul, the heart of God? We become distressed when we recognize there are people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of one particular time in my life where I experienced a kind of distress over idols. Uh, My family and I were visiting China, and one of the things we did was we went into a part of the city where various temples were set up. And there was a street that was filled with little shops where you could buy idols of all various sizes and colors and shapes. I mean, if you could think of it, you, you could find it and buy it. And what people do is they, they buy these little idols and they take them home and they keep them in their house. And then we went into the temple, which was on the same street. You pay like a, a cover charge and you can go in and there are all these various kind of uh, displays. And there's really big ones too. I've got pictures. It's incredible. They're, they're kind of behind almost like glass and then almost it's like golden dolls is the best way to describe it with various pieces of animals. Most of them have like human-like features big long beards, and out in front they would have bowls where people would place fruit and and money and and various uh, items. And then in front of that they had pillows on the ground so that worshipers could come and and bow down prostrate uh, before these dolls, these idols, as they prayed. I remember walking through and just taking in this sight and thinking, "There's, there's no gospel here. There's, there's no power in these gods. How, how could these people, how could they be so foolish? They sense that God is real. They, they sense that there is something divine and they can't figure out how, how to connect with it. They're, they're fumbling in the dark. And it struck me as I returned home that while Americans may not bow down prostrate before anything physically, that we have our own idols that we live for, and give ourselves to. You see, idols are not just statues worshipped at shrines. They're substitute gods. They're functional saviors, things we look to for satisfaction instead of Jesus. Things that we, we worship, that we live for. The common ones in our culture that we bow down to in our hearts, the God of money the God of sex, God of power or control. Some of us live for the approval of others. Comfort. Some of us value these things far more than we value Jesus. Some of us give far more of our time and energy pursuing the approval of other people, pursuing comfort, trying to protect our money and increase our estate. Far more time doing those things than we do contemplating God or giving ourselves to the Lord. Lots of these, like money's not not evil in and of itself, right? How you treat it has a lot to do with the function it plays or the role it plays in your life. You can take many good things and put them in God's place and then bow down to them as substitute gods. This is how idolatry shows up in our culture. I think that we need to ask ourselves what idols we have and, and how we can turn from them. They're very, very sneaky. 
John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. What he meant by that is our hearts find ways to take almost anything and turn it into a God, a functional Savior. And it just happens really subtly. But when we take time to think about what we're serving or who we're living for in our lives, oftentimes we will find that these other things have supplanted Christ. So we need to be vigilant to that. Furthermore, we need to be knowledgeable about the idols that exist in our culture. We need to be able to identify them so that we know just exactly where the pressure points are, where the gospel is going to confront and challenge our culture so that we can preach it clearly, share it in a way that's most winsome, not changing the message, but perhaps changing our methods depending on who we are talking with. This is what Paul does. He's identifying these idols. He's moved with compassion. And so he starts a spiritual conversation with the people. Look with me in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Remember, that's his pattern. That's what he does in every city. He goes and he preaches the gospel in the synagogue. And then he reasons with those who worshiped, sorry, with those who worshiped God as well as in the marketplace or the agora. Every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, What is this babbler or ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be preaching of foreign deities because he was telling of the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and their foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, moved with compassion, moves into the agora or the marketplace, and we don't have a contemporary equivalent to this. Our world is very spread out. And so like back in the day at this time, you didn't have a newspaper. And so you didn't have the internet. It's hard to believe. So what you did was you went to this agora or this marketplace, and heralds would come, and they would tell you the news. This is where business deals got done. It was where art was performed. It was where people just went to discuss matters and exchange ideas. The agora is where the action is at. And so Paul, to engage the culture, he just goes to this marketplace. And he, he begins sharing about Christ. He begins reasoning with the people there. And it's at this point we're introduced to two particular uh, groups of people there. One is the Epicureans, and one is the Stoics. And so uh, these are two groups of philosophers. They represent schools of philosophy. They represent some of the worldview thinking that was going on in Greece at the time. And so, uh, if I can give you just really simple explanations, uh, the Epicureans were materialists. And so they thought, uh, if there is a God or gods, if they exist, uh, they exist somewhere in the ether and they are indifferent towards us. They don't, they don't care. Uh, they believe that life was fleeting and so we ought to live for pleasure. And so, uh, Diogenes, I can't ever say his name right, but he, he used to sum up the Epicurean philosophy this way. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Pleasure can be attained, pain can be endured. 
Epicureans had a very much um, pursue pleasure because this is all there is. Squeeze the most fun and pleasure you can out of life. And the Stoics were kind of the flip side of that. Uh, they believed that the only good in life was virtue. And they were pantheist or panentheist, depending on who you ask. But basically, they believed that God was in everything. It's like this spark of the divine, what they called the logos, was in everything and ran everything, which is part of the reason John picks up on that language, logos, in John 1. Right? That there's a spark of the divine and that God was in everything and kind of controlling everything providentially. But they definitely didn't think you should have any emotions. That's why um, if you've ever heard somebody say, well, he's so stoic, you know, have a stiff upper lip. This is their approach to life. Kind of uh, live and let live. They also believed that there was no life after death. But this is it's kind of what it is. And the best way to be happy is to be indifferent. And so if I can try to summarize crudely here, uh, the Epicureans said, if it feels good, do it. And the Stoics said, grin and bear it, because there's nothing you can do about it anyway. And so both of these schools of philosophy kind of ended up at a very similar place, that we come from meaninglessness, that we go to meaninglessness, and that in between in life, there's really not a whole lot of meaning. And they just approached that meaninglessness in the middle from different perspectives. Like the Epicureans said, in this meaninglessness here, we can find some meaning in getting pleasure. So let's, let's feel as good as we can for as long as we can. And the Stoics said, the best way to endure this life, to have meaning, is to really be a good person and to not allow circumstances or emotions to affect us. And so these are the two groups that Paul is speaking to here. And his sermon will very much press up against some of these beliefs. Because at this point, I think I want to say, you don't have to be a philosopher or as brilliant as Paul or familiar with every worldview in the world to be an effective evangelist. You just have to have a commitment to listening. And so, so sometimes I, I hear Christians say, I don't evangelize because I'm afraid that I might get a question I don't know the answer to. I think that the best way to deal with that is to have some good questions in your own back pocket and to go into those um, encounters with the intent of having an ongoing conversation. That evangelism is not a one-and-done, five-minute conversation, but that you can engage with people over a long period of time. And I think it's important to figure out what they believe. And so you can very much ask questions like, well, what do you think about God? Do you believe in a God? What do you think when I use the word sin? You know, are they understanding sin the same way I am? What is the meaning of life? Where do right and wrong come from? Why do you think that we should pursue justice? Why do you think somebody shouldn't murder somebody else? Ask these questions in your evangelism, and two things will happen. is uh, One, you'll get a really good perspective on how they think, and two, you'll, you'll start to build a relationship and learn how you might respond to some of these claims and how you might best share Christ with them. So just engaging in an ongoing conversation. 
And the first step to effective evangelism is starting the conversation. Don't be afraid to have discussions with people. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know the answer to that question. Right? You want to know who you are speaking with so that you can share the gospel clearly and effectively. And so, uh, for example, if I am in an evangelistic conversation and somebody asks me about um, the theodicy of God, the problem of evil, how, how, if God exists, how can he allow so much evil in the world? Well, it's going to make a big difference to me how I respond to this question if it is a um, young 20s person just right out of college you know, pursuing a degree in philosophy and looking for some sweet information for their paper, right? I might be a little bit more blunt and go into some of the defenses of God that exists there and try to answer their questions. It's going to make a difference if it's that person or if it's a young parent who has just lost their four-year-old son uh, to a brain tumor, right? My approach is going to change. And so I'm going to be, actually do a lot less talking in the latter situation and just listen, Oftentimes, the way people think isn't super logical. It's actually tied to their past experiences with people and circumstances. And so we, we want to be aware of these things. We want to start evangelistic conversations. We want to listen well so that we might know how God would have us tell them about Christ. We must tell them. And Paul, Paul will get there, and it seems like he actually starts there. He starts telling them about Jesus and the resurrection, but they misunderstand him. Now, they call him a, a babbler or an ignorant show-off. The word there literally is seed picker. And so it would, you're like, what does that even mean, seed picker? But in the marketplace, there would be birds rolling around, right? And they would pick up seeds off the ground and move on down the street. And what they meant by that was like, this guy just grabs little bits of information about things that he doesn't know about and then pretends like he knows about them and talks about them, right? And so uh, it would be like me giving lecture on art, right? I've picked up some arty words along the way. Like, well, you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, Vincent Van Gogh was that great of an artist. Um, you know, he did some impressionist stuff, I think. Um, maybe abstract. Abstract art's good. And it's just not going to make a whole lot of sense. You're going to think, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Or maybe cars would be a better example, right? Like, a, you know, catalytic converter. Does that, does, that, does that convert the car to a Cadillac? I've never seen that. Seen that happen? You know, and so they're saying, this is what they're saying of Paul. They're saying he's talking about all these things, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. So things aren't going really well in this conversation that he's started, especially because it, it almost seems that the feel of the text is that they actually think that he's not just preaching one God, but two, Jesus and the resurrection. And it's also interesting that he's preaching foreign deities, and this is what Socrates was killed for years prior was introducing foreign de deities without the consent of the, the ruling powers. It was really, really interesting that they're like, we want to hear some more. And so they're going to take him to the Areopagus, which is just a council of uh, philosophers and the elite. And, and he's going to explain more about this idea of who Jesus is to them. And it's at this point we see he utilizes a lot of their own culture to tell them about Christ. And so we read in verse 22. 
Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, that can also be, people translate that Mars Hill, it's just the place that the council met, but they're not really sure where it was. The council used to have judicial power, but we think at this point it probably didn't. But either way, Paul is going before them and he's kind of maybe being investigated a little bit. People are curious what's going on. So he's giving an explanation. And he says, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. Uh, if he were preaching today, he might say, I see that you are spiritual but not religious. Right? That might be how he started. For as I was preaching through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. This is really interesting that they have an altar to an unknown God. They have so many gods that they actually have one. Like In case we missed one, we want to just put up one for the unknown God. Hey, shout out, we, we, you weren't important enough for us to recognize, uh, but we're going to make sure we have our bases covered so that all of the gods that exist are sated. People used to say that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a person. That's how full of idols the city is. And so he says, you have an idol or you have an altar which is inscribed to an unknown god. And watch, this is just brilliant. Therefore, What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And so right away, Paul is is, shooting some shots over the bow here uh, because they want to hear something new, right? Verse 21, they spend their time telling and hearing something new. They think he's introducing new foreign deities. And so uh, they're like, what's going on with this Paul? And he comes up and he says, I'm not going to tell you anything really new. I'm not introducing you something new per se, but something old. You know this unknown God in your city? Well, you've worshipped him in ignorance. You said it yourself, he's unknown, right? Well, that which you don't know, I'm going to tell you. It's really, really smart. And so if there were any kind of potential judicial proceedings still capable of going on, he's clearing himself of that charge. I'm not introducing a foreign deity. I'm just telling you about the God you already have that by your own admission, you don't know. So let let me tell you about him so that you can know him. This God that you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. God is the creator. The God that you don't yet know, the God who exists, is the only God. He's the creator God, and he doesn't live in shrines built by human hands. So all of these shrines, all of these temples, all of these areas of worship in your city, this is the subtext, it's pointless because the God who is doesn't dwell there. You can't access him that way. He created everything. He sustains everyone. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is the creator, and he doesn't dwell in any place that's built by human hands. Solomon knew this. We read it in 1 Kings 8. I've built you this glorious temple, but it cannot contain you. Indeed, the heavens cannot even contain you. God is the creator. He exists by himself. He's, and this is where it's going to press up against stoicism, he exists in a way that's distinct from his creation. It's distinct from his creation, he is the creator. Paul continues, 
Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Again, this is kind of a um, punch against their whole economy, against their philosophy. If you've got this many gods in the city, that's a pretty big business. Somebody's got to make the gods. Somebody's got to serve the gods. And Paul is saying, all of these things that your businesses are kind of built around, pointless. Because the God who created is the God who is. He's distinct from his creation. And he's not served by human hands. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything. He's self-existent and he's perfectly satisfied in and of himself. This is important for us to recognize. Brother, sister, I love you, but God does not need you. He is not served by human hands. I think sometimes we, we speak rightly of, of serving God, and, and what we mean by that is offering Him worship in our hearts, lovingly obeying Him, and, and that's right. But we need to be careful that we don't, we don't get it twisted and get it wrong. And think that when we serve God, that we are, we're somehow meeting a need that he has. God has no needs. He's not served by human hands. In fact, he, and this is really crazy, he serves us. Right? The Christian gospel is not God coming to us and into the world and putting up a help wanted sign. It's God putting up a help available sign. Jesus doesn't come to us in order to recruit us to his service. He doesn't come like a, a college football coach trying to recruit us to, to join his team. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't come because he needs us, but because we need him. He tells us this. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, it's not served by human hands, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God does not need your service. You need his. And how did, how did Jesus serve us? Well, he came and he purchased for us our salvation by shedding his blood on the cross. He served us by dying for our sin in our place. He served us by defeating death and rising from the dead. He serves us by interceding for us before the Father right now. He serves us by working all things together for the good of us who believe, those who have been called according to his purpose. He serves us by justifying us. He serves us by growing us in godliness. That's sanctification. He's going to serve us by bringing us into glorification. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He's not going to fail. Our God humbles himself and serves us, his creation. And our twisted thinking, with well, us backwards. That's incredible. Jesus came not because he needed us, but because we needed him. We need him. He's not served by human hands. In fact, he gives everyone life and breath and all things. 
See here, he's pressing against your um, Epicureans. Not only is he creator and distinct from his creation, but he's also intimately involved in his creation. So Paul is saying, you guys have all got it wrong. There's not multiple gods. There's one God, and he teaches them this by taking a, a, what's the word I'm looking for here? Takes a monument that's supposed to be aimed at polytheism, and he turns it in the direction of monotheism. He's saying, there's actually only one God, and he's created everything, but he's not distant or indifferent. He's close by. He doesn't need anything from you. In fact, everything you have is from him. He is the author of life. He gives life and sustains life. And so he, he's bigger than you ever could conceive. He's more transcendent than you ever thought. But he's also closer than you would ever dare dream. He's intimate. He gives you life. This God doesn't have any need He doesn't need anything from you, but you need everything from him. He continues. Now, he's he's made two points. The God God who is created the cosmos. The God who is is not served by human hands, but sustains the universe. And he continues, the God who is rules sovereignly. Verse 26, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. God is intimately involved in his creation, ruling over it providentially. What he's, what he's saying to them, this would have hurt a little bit too, the Greeks thought themselves better than everyone else. And so anybody who was not a Greek was considered a barbarian. And Paul is going, those barbarians that you don't like, well, they're your blood relatives, okay? We're all descended from one man. God has built diversity into the human race. And we know from Revelation that his intent is never to change that. That he delights in the kaleidoscope of colors that he's made people into, that he's put on people. There's a better way to phrase it, but you get the idea. There are going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation with every kind of skin color around the throne of the Lamb. We will worship Jesus together because we have been made one in the new Adam. We all descend from the old Adam and we have been rescued and are united in the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who is our King. There's no room for racism among God's people. And I really love the second part of this verse. He determined the appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. The point here is that God is sovereign over history and geography. Think about that. You've never been somewhere that God didn't plan for you to be. You're where you are right now because God determined it. Pretty incredible. Pretty comforting. Friends, think about it. God has so loved you that he has brought you here this morning that you might hear his word preached. That's no small thing. In fact, he puts all people where they are with the hope that they would seek him. That's what Paul says in verse 27. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out, grope around, and find him. 
though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. When Paul uses the word offspring here, he's speaking of being created in God's image, and that's it's going to go towards his next point in a second. But the image here is he's saying God has put everyone where they are, and his intent is that they would seek him. He's saying, and it's not, it's not a hopeless hide and seek. God, God can be found because he's revealed himself. There's also this tension because they can't find God. We can't find God. See, God isn't hiding from anyone, but has been rejected by everyone. That's what sin is. We've all chosen to live according to our ways rather than his word. And part of God's expression of wrath to to those who do not know Christ is to allow them to go their own way, Romans 1. And so we have this image here where people innately know there is a sense of the divine. There's a sense that there's something more to this life. Like that old uh, C.S. Lewis quote, he says, if there's a desire in me that this world cannot fulfill, it means that I'm created for another world. Or uh, Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There is a part of every person that recognizes there is something more, there's something divine. I was made, I was created for God. But can't quite find it because we are, in the image here is, is like fumbling around in the dark. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have many times. My light switch, I go down in my basement, and the light switch is at the top of the stairs. And so sometimes, inevitably, I'll be heading up behind someone, and they'll shut off the light, and I'll go, oh, you know, I forgot my phone. And so I know, I know the phone is down there somewhere, and because I'm foolish, I will wander around my basement for five or ten minutes trying to, you know, find the phone in the dark unsuccessfully. I hope that you guys do this, and it's not incredibly weird. Once somebody turns the light on, I know right where it is. I can see it's clear. It's there the whole time. But this is kind of the image we have. These, they're seeking after God in the dark, but they can't find him. Because they're blinded by their sin. People can't find God because we're blinded by our sin. And Paul says, he would intend for you to find him that you might reach out. He's going to call us to repentance in a second. He's saying he's not far from you. You have that sense that he's there. He's not far. But the way that you take hold of his promises, the way that you can know God, and we're going to see it in verse 30, is by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. As it continues, we're his offspring, verse 29. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art or imagination. This is his big point. We're created in God's image. We can't create him in our image. Does that make sense? The God who created us isn't going to turn around and have us create him. And so all these gods that we've, you've created according to your imagination and your ingenuity, they're false gods, they're worthless, they're pointless. You've been made in the image of God. You need to serve God according to how he's revealed himself. You need to worship God according to his own self-disclosure, which I'm proclaiming to you now. And so he says, uh, 
I'm going to run through them all again. The God who is created the cosmos, the God who is, is not served, but serves and sustains, the God who is rules sovereignly, the God who is created us for relationship with him, that we might find him, the God who is, is gracious and patient. That's what we're getting to now in verse 30. Says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. This word overlooked times of ignorance doesn't mean that God is just sweeping sin under the rug and that he's not judging. It means that he didn't pour out his righteous wrath already, right now, in its fullness. Instead, he's being patient. Right? We get a sense of this in Romans 2, 4. 2, 3, and 4. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things, evil things, wicked things, yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's patience in not judging sin right away, right now, his overlooking of your sin right now, is intended to lead you to repentance. Paul is saying, you were ignorant of the unknown God before. I am now disclosing him to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are now doubly responsible to repent of your sin and trust in him. Ignorance might have been an excuse. It still wouldn't have worked. There still would have been judgment. But now you're even more responsible because you have more knowledge. You are no longer ignorant. You're being held accountable. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And do notice, Paul doesn't say, God gives you an invitation to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. He says, no, God commands it. Because this is a command that cannot be ignored with impunity. It's like if you get drafted for the war and you ignore that summons, or you get a subpoena to court, you ignore it. You can't do that without consequences. My kids can't even ignore my instruction without consequences. We cannot ignore God's command to repent without consequences. He says, turn from your sin and worship me. It's what you were made for. That's what Paul says. Turn and trust in Christ. And he goes further in verse 31. The God who is is gracious and patient. You should serve him. But the God who is is also judge. Because he has set a day... When he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's Jesus, he is appointed. And he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God is going to end evil. The reason he hasn't already is so that he might save you and I from our sins. All evil, all sin has been or will be punished. It has been punished in Christ who bore our sin, or it will be punished as God's wrath is poured out on all those who refuse to repent. His his right wrath will be poured out for all eternity. And if if your thought is, well, that's not fair. Eternity is a really long time. Well, then you haven't got a picture of just how big and how holy and how glorious and how wonderful God is. The punishment fits the crime. Our view of sin is just far too small. Sin is utterly sinful. It's far worse than you think. And indeed, it merits 
God's everlasting punishment. He will not allow sin to go unatoned for. The only way it can be atoned, the only way your sin can be atoned for is if you trust in Christ who died that the sins of all who trust in him might be forgiven and who rose from the dead to free us from death and to prove that he would return as judge. Our Savior is also our sovereign ruler and just judge. He will judge fairly. There will not be anyone on the last day who says this isn't fair. Everyone will recognize that God is right. And so, a couple lessons. We see Paul, he identifies their idols. He starts spiritual conversations and he speaks the gospel to them in a way that challenges their worldview. And so we we do well to follow this example to start spiritual conversations, identify idols in our culture, and then to speak the gospel in the most winsome way we can. Not backing off on its claims. We want to make it clear. But but making sure folks understand what we're, we're saying. We're making sure we're speaking the same language. We want to learn who we're sharing the gospel with so that we can know how to most effectively share it. We also see that Paul, what we would expect... Let me back up. This passage is a pretty famous one in Acts. People preach it often. And in my study this week, I came after sermon after sermon, commentary after commentary, that just talked about this is a model for cultural engagement. This is the best way. Like, you follow Paul's model. It's just such a great way to share your faith. And what was ironic to me is that when we get to verses 32 and 34, there is not mass conversion. Like, Some people believe, it's very few, some want to hear more, but the vast majority mock Paul and refuse the gospel. I'm going to read the verses and then give you the two implications. Uh, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so two two implications. Uh, First, you can have the best evangelistic strategy, the most brilliant mind, the most eloquent tongue, and you can share the gospel perfectly. And whoever you're sharing with still might not believe. Because your evangelistic skill doesn't save anyone. God saves not you. Someone's salvation, and this should come as a relief to you, is not up to you. It's up to God's sovereign grace. Only God makes dead people come to life, not us. And then secondly, I think when we share the gospel, we should expect to be mocked. We often see over and over again throughout Acts that Paul is persecuted. And here when he mentions the resurrection from the dead, he is laughed off stage, if you will. He is ridiculed. As those who follow Jesus, we also should share knowing that we might be ridiculed. And we should be willing to be mocked. Because this is what Christ has done for us. Jesus looked down from heaven 
and saw a world fumbling about in the darkness in rebellion against God. He was distressed over our idolatry, and so he stepped out of heaven. God the Son stepped out of heaven, took on flesh as Jesus Christ our Lord, lived a perfect life, and submitted himself to being mocked. They blindfolded him. They beat him, prophesied Christ, put scarlet robes on him, pressed a a crown of thorns down on his head. Who hit you? Hail the king of the Jews. Jesus was mocked by men so that we might be approved and accepted by God. Indeed, Jesus tasted death for all who will repent of their sin and trust in him. Jesus is risen and frees all who will trust in him from death. Saves us from the judgment that we are due. This is the nature of grace. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. You and I deserve hell because of Jesus. We're commanded to repent so that we can have heaven. Friends, the God who is is knowable. Let us all obey that command to repent. It's for our good. And it will bring God glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Pray that it would encourage us towards engaging with our culture and our friends and our neighbors. That that we might speak the gospel to them lovingly and boldly that we would never be embarrassed by any of the claims that your word makes. But knowing that you are good, knowing the truth, that we would hold it out faithfully. Pray that we would repent of our own idols, of our own sins, and experience your grace afresh this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be with us throughout this week, that you you would press these words on us as we reflect on this message, and look forward to Acts 18 next week. Help us as your people to walk humbly and faithfully with you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, making yourself touchable by taking on flesh. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.